Let's uh, pray now before uh, we come to look at God's word. Father, as we come to your word now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I wonder what you are praying for. That can be a bit of a tricky question to answer, and especially if prayer isn't something that you've done a lot. But either way, I want you to think about what you pray for or what you would pray for. See, if you're anything like me, sometimes your prayers can feel a little bit reflexive. Especially when life gets busy, it can seem like my prayers are dictated more by just what crosses my mind. And I wonder if you're in the same boat there. We pray then about the next test that we have coming up. We pray about our workload. We pray about our kids doing well in school. Because essentially we pray for what concerns us, don't we? But now, if I'm honest, these in-the-moment prayers of mine, they don't really have the kind of depth that I wish they did. And maybe you feel like you're in the same boat there. And I wonder, have our prayer lives become too narrow? Have they maybe become too small or too based on our next stress in life? And what I really want to happen this morning is that our prayer lives would be ignited again because of what we read in Ephesians chapter 3. As we get an insight to what Paul prays for, to listen in to what concerns him so much that he prays them. So Paul has informed us in verse 14 that he is bowing his knee before the Father. And we get to put an ear to his door, as it were and to listen into this great apostle's prayer for the church in Ephesus. It's a pretty cool picture, isn't it? We get to put an ear to his door and to listen into what he's praying for. And as we do that, let's ask ourselves, what is it that concerns Paul so much that he prays to God for them? What shapes Paul's prayer life here? Because these might just be the big prayers that we want to have in our toolkit. So let's dive in. Firstly, the substance of the prayer. So the first thing that he prays for in verse 16 is that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's probably worth keeping your Bibles open for this because they're heavy prayers. And you may be thinking, whoa, Scott, that is a lot for one prayer point. But that is Paul, remember, he prays much bigger and much deeper prayers than what I do. So let's read that verse, verse 16 again. He is praying that out of his glorious riches, what might God do? Well, he might strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So for a start, he's praying that God would act out of his infinite resources. He's acting out of his glorious riches. Paul knows that there is no end to the resources that God can act from. He is God after all. And as we pray, as we pray, we mustn't slip into picturing God as this busy man in heaven who's pulled left, right, and center. No, this is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the all-powerful God. He has this wealth of power. And this is why Paul doesn't pray, God, if you can just muster the strength, or God, if you could spare something of your limited power, no, what he does is he prays, God, will you act out of your glorious riches? 
This is the God that we are praying to. And then what does Paul ask him to use this for? Well, of all the things that he could have asked God to use his power for, he asks that he would use it to strengthen you in your inner being through his spirit. And that's maybe a slightly obscure phrase. So we're on the two slides time here, I think. Yes, there we go. So what is your inner being? And for this, I find this verse in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, very helpful. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So our inner being is the part which outlasts the grave. See, as we get older, we start to notice that our bodies can't do the same things that they used to. Maybe some of us used to be the people who set the pace on the family walk. And then as kids came along, they started to be the ones who set the pace. And maybe then we've seen grandkids come along and suddenly they're the ones who set the pace on this walk. Our bodies can't do what they used to. And maybe hospital visits have become more frequent or more weighty for us. But while our outer self is wasting away and there's little that we can do about it, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul is saying it is as alive as ever. And better yet, it's going to continue to be so because it has been resurrected in Christ to eternal life. And so Paul prays here that God would minister by his spirit and strengthen your inner being, this part of you which will last. And he's not short of power to do it. Remember, this is out of his glorious riches that he's acting. And if we're wondering then, what does that look like? What does it look like to be strengthened in our inner being? Well, Paul tells us the effect in verse 17. It's so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I'll maybe go back a slide just so they see the big point of this. This is for Christ to transform us. Now, if Paul's praying for Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith, it's probably worth pausing here to address a question which this raises. So this letter has been addressed to believers in the church in Ephesus. It's been addressed to believers, so maybe that's enough to get a few raised eyebrows. Because if Paul is praying for believers here, then why is he asking for Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith? Has that not already happened for them? Does he not indwell every believer the moment that they come to faith in him? And in fact, did Paul not already say that this happens earlier in his letter? And I know for a fact that he did because I read it last time that I preached in this pulpit. He said it at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. And it can't be the case then that the Spirit comes and then he maybe leaves again because in Ephesians 1, Paul says that we believers are sealed by his Spirit as a guarantee that we will make it to the very end. So why then does he pray here that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith if he is writing to Christians? Well, it's because the thrust isn't so much that Christ would come for the very first time, but that he would really settle in their hearts. And that seems to add up with the rest of the book, but it's also confirmed by the Greek word which is used here. And basically, in the original language, I'm not going to butcher either of the words, but there are two words for dwelling in Greek. One means to inhabit a place as a stranger. It's like the weaker form of the word, but it's not the one that Paul uses here. He uses a word here which means not just to inhabit as a stranger, but to come and to settle down. So for the past number of years, I have rented a house in Belfast. 
And when you're living somewhere temporarily, you don't really do a whole lot to the house because you realize that, well, you're only there for a year, so you're really just a passerby in that house. But it's an entirely different story, isn't it, when the house is yours? When you know that you're going to settle down there, and some of us in the congregation will know that all too well. (laughs) So the second that they bought their houses, they were in, and those cigarette-stained wallpapers were pulled off the walls, the boilers were replaced, the walls were replastered, sometimes even walls were taken down. The kitchens were stripped away, new stuff was put in, a fresh coat of paint was put all over the house, On and on it goes until you look around and there isn't a corner of that house which is untouched. Every family, when they get into their home, they gradually make this place theirs. It'll be stamped by their mark. And even after years living in it, I'm sure some people will look at the garden and they'll say, you know what, I'm going to finally do it the way I wanted it. Or they'll look at the cushions and they'll change them and say they've never been quite right. This house that you looked at at first, it maybe didn't seem that appealing to live in, but it has been transformed gradually, slowly, but significantly until it speaks of the one who lives there. And this is the picture of the Christ that doesn't just come to visit, but has come to settle down. And so Paul prays that Christ would indeed take up residence in us, that he would transform us. If you want a very tangible piece of application at this point, will you pray for the sanctification, for this ongoing transforming work of the Spirit in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? It might seem like a slow process, but it is sure and it is significant. He hasn't come to pass by. He has come to settle down and to make us a fit dwelling place for him. The second thing that Paul then prays for is that we would grasp Christ's love. These are really simple but profound prayer points, aren't they? They're not shallow in the slightest. These are huge prayers, but at the same time, they're also quite obvious, aren't they? Look with me at the second half of verse 17 on through 19. Paul says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's interesting, isn't it? This prayer that Paul prays isn't that we would have the power to love Jesus more. He's praying that we would have the power to grasp Jesus' love for us. They're both good prayers to pray, but this one is echoing something of 1 John 4.19, that we love because he first loved us. In other words, if we're ever going to love well, it's going to be because we have grasped something of Jesus' love for us first. And Paul's prayer isn't just that we will settle for a glimpse of it, but that we would see the full extent of his love. And he explains it essentially in the terms of mass in English, um, or if you want to be a little bit more specific, with dimensions and paradox. So when he uses dimensions here, Paul can't even narrow it down to the usual three that we would think of. That's verse 18. He says that we would know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So now, when Paul prayed this, I'm not really sure what was going on in the back of his mind, but two things came to mind as I read it. Firstly, the end of Romans 8. And Paul says there that he is sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. So this is a steadfast love which will not be ripped away by our circumstances. And the second thing then that came to mind as I read this was why those four dimensions? It's quite an odd thing to say, isn't it? And for this one, I really love what John Stott said that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. I think it's worth sitting on that a second because are these not all things that we really need to grasp? Are these not the things that we all need to hear? To you who maybe feels like an outsider at the moment, is this not the greatest news that God's love is wide enough for you? To you who feels like you can't keep it up and that Christ might abandon you somewhere along the line, is it not the greatest, love, the greatest news that his love is long enough to hold on to you for eternity? To you who maybe feels like a total failure and that your sins just run too deep. Is this not the greatest news that Christ's love is deep enough to meet you there? And then that his love is high enough to save you and to bring you heavenward? The dimensions of Christ's love here are staggering, and in case we couldn't see it in mathematical terminology, he goes on to give us this paradox in verse 19. He says, to know this love which surpasses knowledge. To know what surpasses knowledge. So in other words, he seems to be saying that your brain power is not going to be sufficient to grasp Christ's love here. You can't just understand it intellectually. You're going to need to know something of this experientially as well. His love goes beyond our capacity to just know it. We need to know it experientially as well. See, a newly wife will know in concept that her husband loves her. But it's only after she's seen his love in a thousand different little ways that she really grasps the extent of that love that he has for her. When her life has been filled with him over the years, only then will she grasp the extent of that love. It's more than head knowledge. And for us to grasp Christ's love, then Paul also says that we're going to need the saints around us. We need this very special body of believers that we've been placed amongst. Look at the second half of verse 17 with me. He says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So we're, we will be limited in our grasp of Christ's love if we try to just draw from the repertoire of our own experience, of our own individual experience. But to have people from different backgrounds, different races, different classes, different cultures all gathered together, suddenly we have this showcase of Christ's love with a greater span of that width and length and height and depth of his love right before our eyes. This is why we share not only the gospel, but also our lives with one another as well, so that we would really grasp the extent of Christ's love. 
And to what end is all of this? Well, verse 19 says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It would appear that this is what Paul sees as Christian maturity, to really grasp the love of Christ. That's what it would look like to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It would be to be in awe of Christ's love, unable to put it into words and yet bursting at the seams to sing his praises for it. I wonder when the last time we prayed that for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that they would really grow in maturity, that every day they would grasp something more of his extravagant love. And now we're gonna have a look at the basis for the prayer. So Paul doesn't just pray these things without giving a basis for them. He wants us to ground his prayer in what he knows of God. And we see that in the first few verses of the passage. Look with me at verse 14. It says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, if we come to a for or a therefore in the Bible, it's generally a good idea to look back to the previous section but if you look in your Bible to the previous section, you'll also see that verse one starts with the exact same thing for this reason. Uh, and so we're getting pointed back again to the first two chapters of Ephesians. And fear not, I am not interested in expounding two chapters of Ephesians near the end of a sermon. So we'll settle for a brief summary here, if that's all right. So essentially, Paul's argument has been that before time began, God in his sovereign loving purposes he decided to bring Jew and Gentile into one new humanity. They are one new man now, brought together by the power and the work of Christ on the cross. And then look with me at chapter two, verse 19 to see that. So Paul says to these Gentiles, he says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and the aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And Paul is saying, for this reason then, I kneel before the Father and I pray such and such. For what reason is that? Well, because it is the very purpose of God to build his church. It's his very purpose to build this new humanity that he has brought together. God's revealed purpose here is to build his church. If we want to be people who pray big, then I really want to encourage us to be people who pray with our Bibles open. That's been one of the things which I find to be really helpful over the past couple of years. I mean, I don't know if it is God's purpose to heal Mrs. Smith's big toe, but I do know that it's God's purpose for the maturity of the church. That is what his purposes achieve. I do know that God's purposes are that you and I as Christians would grasp these limitless dimensions of Christ's love. Paul can pray confidently because he is aligning his prayers with the purposes that God has already revealed in his word. So God is working out his great plan of redemption. He has been since the beginning of time. And so Paul then bases his prayer on that, on God's redemptive purposes. And the second thing he bases his prayer on, as you'll see, is God's character. It's God's fatherhood. See, look again at me, look again, not at me, at verse 14, uh, where he says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So Paul is drawing on that idea that the whole church has access to the same Father by the same Spirit. 
there's actually more to this picture from the last half of that verse. He's saying that God is the ultimate father. He is the best father that anyone could ever have. And so while he is all-knowing and sovereign and has acted out these redemptive purposes since before the beginning of time, he is sovereign, he is big, let's not forget that he is also our father. When Jesus teaches on the fatherhood of God in prayer, he says this. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The reality here is that we have a Father who is far more willing to give than his children are willing to ask or receive. Our Father is so willing to give. And Paul knew this as he went on to ask for for his Father to pour out his good gifts, to act out of his glorious riches. Would we know these bases to pray from, that God cares deeply about his redemptive purposes and that he is indeed our father. He knows how to give his children good gifts. And now let's circle back as we finish to what Paul prayed for. Okay, so he had a good basis to pray from. We've established that. But I mean, this guy has literally just asked that we would be made a fit dwelling place for the king of kings. And he's prayed that we would... Know this love of Christ which actually surpasses knowledge. So these are huge prayers and it's very difficult not to ask at this point. Okay, has Paul not just asked for a little bit too much? These seem like a little bit too much. And now if there was ever time, ever a time in the Bible where I think someone might double down on what they're saying, it might be here. Because as I consider that question, has Paul asked for too much? And then I read verses 20 and 21 my Northern Irish bones are calling out, go on, you boy. Because, I mean, this is praying big. He's not shying away at all. He is doubling down on this. Let's read those verses, verse 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What a doxology this is to finish off. Maybe this is something that we really ought to carry into our prayer meetings so that we can go in and know the kind of God that we pray to, so that we can go in and we can pray with real expectation, knowing that this is the God that we pray to. Do you see how this argument builds up? He's saying God can do all we ask. In fact, he can do all we ask or think of asking And actually, he can do more than all we ask or think of asking. And actually, he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or think of asking. Our prayers, they will not stretch the limits of what our God is able to do. Our prayers will not stretch the limits of what our God is able to do. And so can I encourage you to pray big and to carry this level of expectation, carry these verses with you in prayer. This infinite ability of God to work beyond our prayers beyond our thoughts and dreams, is according to verse 20, by his power that is, that is at work within us. The power of his prayer is the spirit of the living God, both within us individually and within us as a church collectively. That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, he is the spirit with the power to fulfill these huge prayers. 
And as Paul closes the prayer, really nothing more can be said but to God be the glory. The power comes from him, the glory must go to him. That is our greatest end. And as we finish here, let me ask you that question again. What are you praying for? Because I think Paul gives us an incredibly encouraging, biblical, God-centered, bold, heart-filling model here to use. Pray that Christ would transform us and pray that we would really grasp Christ's love for us. As you go about your week, I want to encourage you to set aside time to pray that for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't just rely on in those moment prayers, the reflexive prayers. Set aside time to pray for your brothers and sisters, to grow in holiness, in maturity, in awe of Christ's love. What a beautiful thing that is to be able to see your friends who are filled with the love of God, who are just overwhelmed by his love for them, or to see them become more like their Savior Jesus. So let's pray for that. And equally, I've been challenged when I've looked at this, that when people ask me what they can pray for, I want to be simple enough and yet bold enough to ask for the basics here. Because these are big prayers that Christ would transform me and make me a fit dwelling place for him. That I would really grasp his love and so grow in maturity. And that I would truly be holy. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are powerful to answer prayer. That you are our Father who knows how to give good gifts. That you care deeply about redeeming people for yourself. And so we pray boldly for one another these very obvious but deeply profound realities that we would be transformed by your spirit, that we would be made fit for your dwelling and that we would really grasp the extent of your love. In awe would we sing amazing love, how can it be? Amen.